If you've got those Bibles open to John 12, I ask you to stay there. And I do want to say a couple of things. I want to welcome our friend and brother, Chad McDonald, who's here with the Send Network. Welcome, brother. Welcome to church. He's here for a few days, going to work with uh, the team from mile one and go over some things. So I'm glad that they are here, or he is here. And as well, uh, for those watching online, I want to say a special happy birthday to Vince. Uh, it's a special birthday for him. You know Vince and Alma and Basil. He's 21 today, so that's a big uh, milestone in his life. And so uh, a warm welcome to him. And then another dear lady who is watching all the way from Alberta, it's Deb and Cheryl's mom. And so I want to say a greeting to her. She called me yesterday. We had a lovely chat, and uh, she was getting up early so she could watch church and listen to her daughter sing. So I just want to send out uh, greetings to her as well. So if you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 12, I want to get into this. And as well, while we're doing that, take note of the fact that many of us have poppies on. You'll see this wreath down here. This is Remembrance Day week, and we want to be those that do remember. We want to be thankful for all those that have fought bravely on our behalf largely in part so we can do this. We can gather like this publicly with Bibles, without shame, without fear of repercussion, and we can sing and read God's Word, and now I can preach. And so I am very thankful for all those in the past and the present who are serving to make sure that happens. So we're back into the Gospel of John. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's four Gospels. Um, this one, remember, I've often said that this is called a conversation with Christ, because John's gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very different. It's structured different. He's very, very particular on all the things that he puts there. And largely, this gospel is made up of conversations that Jesus has with either an individual or with a group of people or with a crowd. And so that's why I've titled this entire series. I really believe the theme of John is conversations with Jesus. Today, as we look at John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, the theme of this particular passage, the thing that I want you to mull around in your minds and in your hearts all week long, Lord willing, is this concept, the unstoppable worship of Jesus. So I use that word, right? Worship. But now I've got to ask you, because I want you to have your minds engaged, what does the word worship mean to you. If someone says, oh, I worship, we've gathered here, and some of you have already called this, right? We have gathered for the worship service of the church. Some of you listened to the music, and you thought, man, what a great set of worship we did, or the worship, the, the musical worship was good. Often we even call our music teams, much to my chagrin, the worship team. But is that what worship is? Just music? Now, Jesus told the woman at the well, remember back in John chapter 4, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father, God, is seeking such people to worship Him. And then He explains that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship, not should worship, or I hope you'll worship, must worship, get this now, in spirit and in truth. And Paul would later tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so whether you eat or drink, now watch this, or whatever you do, do all to the glory or to the worship 
of God. So I don't think we had a worship service. I don't think the music or it was the worship team or we had the worship and now we're at the preaching. In fact, if you got up and you glorified God in getting up and having breakfast, you worshiped God. If you glorified God in coming to church, that was an act of worship. As you listen to me preach, that's an act of worship. If I preach in spirit and in truth, that's an act of worship. Don't compartmentalize your lives. Everything is worship. Now, how would that change your perspective on what you're going to do tomorrow morning? You see, in fact, the word worship is used 81 times in 73 verses in the New Testament alone, just in Matthew to Revelation. Think about it. Wise men came to worship Jesus as the King of the Jews. Satan in Matthew chapter 4, told Jesus to worship him in temptation. And Jesus' response was that we are only to ever worship God. The disciples fell down, remember, in John chapter 6, and worshiped Jesus after he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And you remember why? Because they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The crowd that met Jesus after he rose from the dead in Matthew chapter 28. You remember this statement? They worshiped Jesus, and then Matthew says, but some doubted. Anna, who you're going to hear about as we lead into Christmas in Luke chapter 2, this lady who was 84 years of age. This is how Dr. Luke describes her. She was constantly in the temple, watch this now, worshiping God, fasting, and praying. In Luke chapter 24, We're told that the disciples returned to Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. And here's how Luke describes it. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple complex praising God. The man born blind in John chapter 9, once he knew who Jesus was, the text says that he fell down and worshiped him. In Acts chapter 13, when the early church worshiped God and they fasted and prayed, then the Holy Spirit moved. And over and over and over again, from Romans to Revelation, we're told about the power and the expression and the means of worshiping God. Now, I've been doing a daily Devo on Monday to Friday, and you've heard me say it for those of you that follow that over and over again. Brother Steve has read John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, and I want you to do it. If you're taking notes, remember OIA, observe, interpret, and apply. You've got to observe the text. So what do you see there in this text? When Steve was reading it, when you look at John chapter 12, 12 to 19, what do your eyes observe? What do you see? What words, what expressions, what stands out to you? Then you've got to interpret it. What does it mean? What did it mean? Why did John write it in the first century when he wrote this gospel? What does it mean now? And then you've got to apply it. Are there lessons there for you and I to learn? So what and why is this text here in John's gospel? What do we see here? What are we supposed to do with this text and where it's placed? Now, you guys will laugh because we already know what John wants us to conclude. Remember, every single sermon I've ever preached He always tells us that the purpose he wrote this gospel, he gave us his purpose at the end of his letter, right? John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, 
Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So John is telling you, look, I didn't record everything that Jesus did. I, I, there are many things that Jesus did that are not written here, which are not written in this book. But he says, but these are written. These seven signs are written. I've carefully chosen them. Why? So that you and I, us, would believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what's the result of that? That by believing, watch this now, you may have life in his name. Not religion in his name. Not a get-out-of-jail-free card in his name. Not heaven real estate in his name. That you would have life, and it's not just life, it's in his name. See, John chapter 12, verse 12, when you get here, you have arrived at Passion Week. This is the Sunday before Jesus is going to be crucified. Many commentators say this begins the most crucial seven days in the history of humanity. John has laid out his sevenly, seven crafted amazing signs. And we've seen the crowds, right, get bigger and bigger. The wonder, the fame, and I might add, the notoriety of Jesus. There's already a standing arrest on site order from the religious chief priests, but the general population, well, they're a combination of amazed by and in love with Jesus. Now, the last time that I preached and we looked into John 12, we saw that Jesus was being privately honored. Although it was a public spectacle, it was meant to be a private supper, a congratulatory supper, a celebratory supper. They were thankful for Christ and they were celebrating that Lazarus was alive. Remember, this was a guy who died and he was in a grave for four days. Just take 30 seconds and let your mind percolate on that. Dead for four days. And now he's alive and he's at supper. (laughs) I don't know about you, but if I got an invitation to that, I would go. All right, I would want to be an, an, an invitee to that supper, to meet a guy who had been dead for four days and is now alive, and as well to meet the guy who called him back to life. I, I would want to be at that supper. But now here in our passage, Jesus is going to be publicly honored. We're going to see a parade, quite literally a parade fit for a king. But John, the apostle, the guy who's writing this, who, by the way, he's not just writing this as a reporter, he's an eyewitness. He was there. He's writing this because he wants to make something clear. He wants you and I to understand that the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem on that Sunday is actually way more significant than anybody in this passage thought or realizes, more than the crowd, more than the disciples, even those against Jesus. So here's my big idea today. The worship of Jesus is is not only unstoppable, but God's plans and God's ways are far bigger and better than you and I could ever imagine. Now, I want you to realize that because I say that knowing that every one of you is at a different phase of life. Every one of you has different struggles, questions, doubts, hopes, dreams, 
hurts. Every one of you have come here today, some out of habit, some out of form, many because you're genuinely trying to make sense of life. You're looking for something. You're trying to fit in. You're trying to make your life make sense, especially with the craziness that is 2020. But here we are today looking at something that happened 2,000 plus years after this day. And yet, I want you to understand that a very different kind of king was actually entering Jerusalem. Not the kind that the crowd is actually singing to. A very very different kind of king was arriving in Jerusalem that day over 2,000 years ago for a very different reason than anyone thinks or believes or understands. And that problem is still happening today. I promise you, it's still happening in this room. So... I want you to realize that not just that the worship of Jesus is unstoppable. Hear me now. Jesus is not just a king. He's the king. He's not an option. He's the option. He comes in the name of the Lord, but you and I have to see that this isn't about Jesus' royal entrance into Jerusalem as some political king or some revolutionary. This wasn't like he was elected, like the U.S. elections, and he's coming now to give his big acceptance speech. I accept your adoration. I accept your coronation. That's not what it is. In fact, you're going to realize that his entrance is actually about a departure. His entrance is about a departure. Do you realize what it is? It's a departure from the grave. His resurrection from the dead. So let's look at this passage that Steve read in verses 12 to 15. If you're taking notes, I want you to realize, number one, misapplied worship. Misapplied worship. So what do I mean by that? You're going to see in this crowd in verses 12 to 15, misapplied worship, which means looking to Jesus with your agenda. When you and I look to Jesus, we we literally want to worship Him, but we've got our agenda. Now see if you resonate with this. You see, it's not just any Sunday here. It's the Sunday before Passover. In Jewish life and history, the Jews were called to come to Jerusalem three times throughout the year. They were to present themselves at Passover, at Pentecost, and what they call the Festival of Tabernacles. But far and away, the Passover was the biggest, most attended festival of them all. It was also the most sober or somber. Josephus claims that up to 2.7 million people would gather into Jerusalem for the Passover. And are you ready for this? that upwards to 260,000 sheep would be slaughtered over the next six days. Now, many people think he's exaggerating, but even the most liberal and conservative of scholars would say at least somewhere between a half a million and a million people would have been there, and well over 100,000 sheep would be sacrificed. And friends, I don't know about you, but in a year of social distancing... In a year when we're not supposed to gather in mass, in a year when this is as big as this crowd is allowed to be, that's a massive crowd, isn't it? Even if you go with the smallest number, do you know what it would be like to be in a crowd of a half a million? 
For some of you, you're getting claustrophobic, just as I say it. I was in Jerusalem one year, right at the end of the sundown on Friday, which, believe it or not, in a Muslim world, their holy day is from sundown Thursday to sundown Friday. In the Jewish world, their holy day is from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So I was in the old city of Jerusalem in what's called the Muslim Quarter, right around sundown on Friday. And I was at the Damascus Gate. And right at that point, all of the mosques in that area let out, and there was a massive surge of people. And I was with a dear lady, she was an older lady, and she was extremely claustrophobic. And the Damascus Gate into Jerusalem, the old city, is the largest of the gates. But you enter the gate, you take a 90-degree turn and another 90-degree turn to get out of the gate. Now, this thing is packed with people. And the lady I was with, who was old enough to be my mom, literally turns around. Now, she's facing me. And she says, I'm afraid. I'm panicking. Save me. Okay. (laughs) So all I did was I just grabbed her, and she literally wrapped herself around me. And we are enthralled by people as we get into this gate. Now, I'm 200 pounds, okay? (laughs) You don't need to know what. I'm just 200 pounds, okay? When we got inside that gate, we were so compressed as people. I kid you not, before God, I picked up my feet and I didn't fall to the ground. That's how tightly we were wedged in there. And literally, like the current of a river... We, we had to go with the press of the crowd till all of a sudden we broke out onto the open and just there was this mass spillage of people. And I can tell you that's the closest I've ever been to any group of human beings of which only one of them in my proximity wrapped around me like a fish did I know. And so I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in Jerusalem on this day with upwards to a half a million or a million people all thronging the street as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. And John, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wants us to know that Jesus comes in, watch this now, on a donkey. Now this doesn't go with our sensibilities. Because you and I have a view of history that says if someone was coming in as the regal hero, as the king, well, of course, he would be on a horse. But what you have to realize in Jewish history, it was actually a donkey that was royal. If you were a human being of dignity, this was a sign of an announcement. The horse, as a military ride, comes much later in human history. Nobility in Jewish times, prophets, royalty, yes, even deity, they were always carried on donkeys. And I laughed when I read this. One scholar said this, the donkey in the Old Testament into the early days of the New was, so to speak, of the Mercedes-Benz of the biblical world. But this was, of course, in fulfillment of prophecy. Look at that where he quotes Zechariah chapter 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9. But what's more is what the crowd is saying. Look again at verse 13. They cry out these words from Psalm 118, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hmm. This crowd of a half a million or more honestly believes that Jesus is coming in to conquer. 
that he is the king. Just like we are watching live in 2020 in U.S. politics. It's a country divided. Half believe that their guy is the great deliverer. The other half believe their guy is the great deliverer. And they are very sincere and passionate and urgent in that belief. This crowd of a half a million to two million people believe that Jesus is coming in and he's the conqueror. He's going to come. He's the king and they believe freedom is about to be theirs, that Jesus can heal. I mean, for goodness sakes, he can raise people from the dead. He can feed them and heal them and protect them. He can calm storms and cast out demons. I mean, who wouldn't want this for a king? But that's just the problem. This is misapplied worship. Oh, they're quoting scripture. They're saying the right things. But the key to knowing that they don't get it is actually a week after this event. You'll see that they don't want Jesus to come to Jerusalem anymore. Because many in this crowd saying Hosanna are then going to say crucify him. Because he actually didn't give them what they wanted. Now what is unique to the gospel of John in the triumphal entry of Jesus over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, look at verse 13, is again this, palm branches. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about this. Palm branches is John's thing. And that's the key of how I know this is misapplied worship. John writes this and he wants you to take notice that they had these palm branches and they're waving them and they line them. Even to this day, some of you grew up in churches where you've had Palm Sunday. And as kids in Sunday school, you were chosen to be one of the special ones that had your palm and you did this as somebody sang or the choir sang and you made a big fuss of this. And I can see by some of your faces, you've done that. Okay? But you've got to realize, that's only in Israel's history for the last two centuries. has nothing to do with the Old Testament. This was actually derived as a symbol of Jewish nationalism. This came about when Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and restored the temple about 150 years earlier. He was heralded by waving palms. And during the wars of religious rebellion, a generation after Jesus, coins were struck by the insurgents with the image of palm branches. And so the palm was the Jewish emblem for a conqueror, an association that they also made with a promised Messiah. And the great commentator William Barclay writes that the Jews who waved these palms We're looking on Jesus as God's anointed one, the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who was to come. And there is no doubt that they were looking on Jesus as here's our conqueror. So they're quoting scripture. They're worshiping Jesus, but on their terms, with their agenda. They want something from Jesus. Jesus is a means to an end. They don't want Jesus on his terms. But that, my friends, is what you and I need to see. Jesus is good and loving and kind and gentle and lowly. Jesus is powerful and mighty to save. Jesus is both willing and able. But Jesus will say in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God as Father but 
by and through me. You and I must, we must worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, which is why I believe John tells us what he does next. So you've got misapplied worship. That's when you try to worship Jesus on your terms. Next notice, if you're taking notes, misunderstood worship in verse 16. That's when you are looking at Jesus instead of looking to him. Now, for those of you that are younger, you young adults, and those of you that are in high school, I want you to listen. If you ever want another reason why you need to believe that the Bible is true and it's really God's word, verse 16 of John 12 is one of a thousand reasons why I believe the Bible to be God's word and not something just simply made up of guys. All right? Because you would never write a book like this and make humanity look stupid all the time. Because if you read the Bible, humanity is always the loser. Okay? John is writing this and he's basically admitting, you know what? All of this was happening and the 12 of us were there and none of us got it. We all misunderstood. You would never write that if this was a conspiracy theory. You would never say, oh, please believe my lie. We're the morons. That's not usually how conspiracy theories work. And I enjoy this so much because they saw, they were close to Jesus. They heard him speak. They saw the miracles. They felt and experienced the power. And yet, according to verse 16, they still didn't understand these things. Now, I have to be honest with you. I enjoy movies. I also have to be honest and tell you that sometimes I enjoy movies that I think are awesome that the rest of the world thinks are pretty stupid. So in 2012, there was a movie that came out and it was made famous because it was based on a popular children's board game and the title of that movie was called Battleship. It is riveting cinema. I love the movie. But the critics don't, okay? The two main characters of this movie is an American lieutenant named Sam Hopper, who was in the American Navy, and his counterpart, a Japanese captain, Captain Nagata of the Japanese Navy. And at first in the movie, they're bitter rivals, but because, as is wont to happen, aliens attack, all right? And we know that that's going to happen at any moment, and that's what makes the movie so believable, all right? So aliens come down, and they've got these floating ships. So they crash into the ocean and they float and they've got force fields and everything else. It's it's quite believable. And um, now they've got to join forces. So this American lieutenant and this Japanese captain now have to come together. And throughout the movie, as they try to outsmart the aliens, they keep referencing a book called The Art of War. And each one chides the other one sarcastically that they've read it and studied it, but nobody gets it. And at the one of the big climaxes of the movie, Lieutenant Sam has made incredible and risky military maneuvers to against these alien ships, and it looks like they're all going to die, but his move turns out to be brilliant, and in fact seems to work. And what makes me laugh every single time is Captain Nagata exclaims, I can't believe that worked, to which Hopper says, yeah, art of war, fight the enemy where they aren't. After all these years, that finally just clicked. And then Captain Nagata goes, But that's not what it means. And Harper says, really? Of which he goes, not even close. 
And here it is, misunderstood worship. The disciples are right there. They're in the midst of this. They have walked and talked with Jesus for years. They think they get it. Jesus comes in. A half a million plus people are singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know that some of those disciples, maybe Judas the Zealot or James the the other one, maybe someone, Matthew, they were, boys, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. No more hiding now. We're going to the temple. Watch him. Watch him. I wonder if James and John said, finally, we get to call down some thunder. Right? And they don't get it. They're looking at Jesus, but they're not looking to Jesus. Francis Schaeffer writes, as Christians, we're not only to know the right stuff or the right worldview, the worldview that tells us the truth of what is, But we're supposed to consciously act upon that worldview so as to influence society in all its parts and facets across the whole spectrum of life as much as we can to the extent of our individual and collective ability. Now, as a commercial, how do these disciples move from misunderstood worship to understood worship? Remember what it says? And they remembered the things that were written. Like I said yesterday for our conference online, this doesn't have to be complicated. Do you want to have an understanding of how to worship God? Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's how it is. But notice next, misplaced worship in verses 17, 18, and 19. And that's where you want the worship of Jesus for yourself. So there's misapplied worship, there's misunderstood worship, now there's misplaced worship. You see, John wants us to know how the religious establishment reacted to this glorious entrance of Jesus. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us something different. Matthew and Luke specifically tell us that the scribes and the chief priests, they go to Jesus and they demand that he stop this gathering. So they basically say, listen, Stop it, okay? There's not enough social distancing here. This crowd is too tight together. They need to disperse now, okay? And if you remember that they actually uh, tell him that they should stop gathering because they actually want this worship and adoration to stop. But what's funny to me is that none of them arrest Jesus. They've actually said anybody who sees Jesus, arrest him on sight. He arrives on a donkey with a motley crew of 12... And just simply a crowd with branches saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the full scope of their anger is to go to Jesus and say, stop this. Like I often wonder why they didn't look to their guards and say, arrest him. Nobody touches him. In Matthew's account, Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2, stating that out of the mouths of babes and infants, he would be praised. But my favorite is in Luke, because Luke tells the chief priests, hey, listen, if I stop the people from praising me, then rocks will cry out to me. Can you imagine what that would sound like in Newfoundland and Labrador? All right, because we live on the rock. So Jesus says, listen, I can stop the people, but you're still going to be aggravated because the mountains will start to praise me. And so why did John tell us this? Look at verse 17 and 18 again. It said, the crowd that had been with him, now they're praising him and he, that was with him when Lazarus called out of the temple and raised him from the dead. And notice these words, continued to what? Bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The biggest event on the calendar year of Israel was the Passover. Jesus has performed all kinds of signs. John's picked out seven for us to see. Everything the scribes and Pharisees have done to confront, question, discredit, and attack Jesus has failed. The chief priests have threatened and even ordered Jesus to be not just arrested, but silenced. All of that's failed. And in these two verses, added to verse 19, we learn what's really at the heart of the issue. Are you ready for this? Jealousy. They're jealous. They're angry that Jesus is getting what they longed for. The crowd's approval and adoration. These men had spent their lives trying to climb the religious ladder. And when the adulation of the people and control looked like it was Jesus, they had spent their lives trying to carve out a piece of the pie of life. Then Jesus comes along. This carpenter's son from Nazareth who touches lepers is a friend of gluttons and drunkards and claims to be God. After all, he has claimed, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was a threat. And can you imagine? You think that these men would have embraced Jesus. The whole nation to accept him and listen to him. Instead, they're angry and jealous. But wait, John wants us to see and you to see. Jesus entered Jerusalem so publicly. He wasn't looking for public approval or a secular throne. He wasn't trying to get modern religious establishment to accept him. Instead, because the time had finally arrived when he was goading the leaders of the Jewish Sanhedrin and into the acting on their wicked plans. That old Anglican minister J.C. Ryle puts it like this, the time had come at last when Christ was to die for the sins of the world. The time had come when the true Passover lamb was to be slain, when the true blood of atonement was to be shed, when the Messiah was to be cut off according to Daniel 9.26. When the way into the holiest of holies was to be opened by the true high priest of all mankind. And knowing this, Jesus placed himself prominently under the notice of the entire Jewish nation. He died in a week when by his remarkable public entry into Jerusalem, he had caused the eyes of all of Israel to be specifically and specially fixed on him. You see, John wants us to know that the jealousy of religion can't stop the purposes and plans of God. But according to God's plan and purpose, nothing can stop it. You can only submit to it and join it. So that's the triumphal entry. The crowd didn't get it. The disciples didn't understand it. Religion wanted to stop it or wanted it all for themselves. But I thought it would be counterproductive to end here if I didn't actually example what true, exalted worship is. And that's my final point very quickly as I end. What's true worship? It's looking to Jesus as Lord. Revelation chapter 5. I want you to come with me to the throne room. For all of the pressures you guys are dealing with with social media and mass media, for all of the stress on pick a team, pick a winner, for all of the survival of the fittest, for all of the pressures and fears you might be dealing with right now in your life, whether it's school or dating or marriage or parenting or just life in general. 
In Revelation chapter 5, John, this same one who wrote about the triumphal entry, says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now watch this. And no one in heaven or under the earth or under the earth or on the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And this is what John did. He began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken that scroll... The four living creatures, the 24 elders, all fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Listen now, which is the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Lord, slain Lamb, who's standing to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then, John says, I looked, and I heard around the throne the four living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And that's not all. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And ever. Oh, Calvary Baptist, listen to me now. This is true eternal worship. This is the unstoppable worship of God. And listen, Satan wants to stop it. The world doesn't want to hear it. Culture wants to defame it. And tragically, too many Christians don't understand it. And may I ask, who are you? Do you know Jesus? Are you curious about him? Do you understand him? This passage is for every single person in this room, from the youngest of you to the oldest. John recorded it the way he did, right down to where this book of signs at the end of chapter 12 comes to an end. And now John chapter 13 to 21 is the book of exaltation. When the greatest sign of all is going to happen, you will see Jesus conquer, but he conquers the greatest enemy that needs to be defeated, sin. Not Rome. And so often we think we know what we want. We think we know what our biggest enemy is. But the question that we must all deal with is Jesus is the king, right? 
He does and is reigning. But Jesus as king will be kingly. Jesus is promised to people from God the Father, a people who he will both rule and defend. Jesus as king restrains us, but also conquers us of his and our enemies. The question is, is Jesus your king? Are you submitting to and worshiping who Jesus is and who Jesus tells us our enemies are? Sin, Satan, the world, a culture that says, I can do it on my own. A culture that says, I get to call my own shots. I'll decide what my fate will be, what my destiny will be. I know what I need. I know what I want. I know what I like. Well, now you're back to worship. You see, Jesus is your prophet, priest, and king, but he's the prophet, priest, and king we need, not whom we want. Friends, you need to be saved from your sin, from the evil intentions of Satan, even from yourself. We lie to ourselves. We hurt ourselves. We are easily frightened and confused. And what's worse, we're stubborn on top of that and we convince ourselves, this is what I want. I am getting far too old for this. Every day I listen to people tell me what they want When Jesus says, you don't know what you want. I will tell you what you need. Even the disciples misunderstood. But what was the key? They had to remember the things that were written. They had to read their Bible. Ron Owen says, true worship is so much more than we genuinely consider it to be. What God is looking for in worship is not great congregational singing, although that can be honoring to him. He's not impressed with big choirs and orchestras, though they may bring him glory. He's not looking for well-articulated prayers or creative preaching, though these may please him. What God is looking for is a people who will love him with all their hearts and who will demonstrate this love by obeying him and placing their lives unreservedly in his hands. He is looking for a people who will worship by serving Him, not just in church, but every day of their lives. And I experienced that this week. I had a collision of very different emotions this week. On Tuesday, I got a text that made the U.S. election seem very small to me when I heard about a dear young man that I have known more than half his life named Nicholas Paul Challies, a child of God and a precious gift as a son to Tim and Aileen, who many of you here know. He died at the tender age of 20, 180 days before his wedding. On Friday, I watched his memorial service down in Louisville, Kentucky, Tim and Aileen and Abby and Michaela are very dear to Debbie and I. And, well, Nick, Nick and I had a very special friendship. And I don't know why, but in my 50 years almost of living, it seems that young men named Nicholas have had big and profound impacts on my life. And while I watched and I cried and I mourned watching that, I thought so many things. I thought about my own life and my marriage. I thought about my children and my grandchildren. I thought about the brevity of life 
and the massive tug-of-war between our emotions and our desires, our intellect and our beliefs. And to be honest, I can't even adequately tell you all the thoughts and emotions I've had. But I realized how quickly and how fragile and shallow I am because in the midst of that memorial service, my computer dinged and this little notice from Kilbride Community Church popped up on my screen which meant Matt sent something else and it was aggravating me that he would do that in the midst of me trying to mourn for my friend. And here's what Matt posted. Your perception of who Jesus is will impact what you want Him to do for you. In the Gospels, we see people asking Jesus for power and prestige, for prominence and others wanting healing, deliverance and mercy. But the question remains, what do you want Jesus to do for you? To make you whole? To give you what you want? To free you from your perceived enemy? So here I was, crying and a bit angry and aggravated, thinking of so many things, and all of a sudden it was like I heard God say to me, but Stephen, Matt just asked you, do do you trust me? And so it turns out, Matt, are you ready? You were right. I I may never say that again about you. (laughs) And that, my friends, is what this passage is all about. Jesus is going to be worshipped. It's quite literally unstoppable worship. And could it be that this is what Paul was thinking when he wrote those words in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is going to be worshipped and exalted, but you need to realize He's worthy, trustworthy, and He's more than good. He is King. You see, that crowd in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago was made up of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and young and old men and women. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here's the issue. They worshiped too small. They were looking for a small king. But Jesus is the king above all kings. He takes us to himself and defeats so much more than our little fears and slays what is actually death to us. This crowd feared Rome and oppression and they longed for ease. It's like a little child who's afraid of the boogeyman in the closet or under the bed while you as a mom and a dad are actively protecting them and feeding them and sheltering them from a whole host of dangers that are a much honest and more true threat than the myth of the boogeyman. And here's the reason John records this. He's saying Jesus is the Christ and by believing in Him, submitting to Him, trusting Him, then and only then will you have life in His name. Eternal life. Life that is settled now and assured into eternity. Life that frees you from small gods of ease and comfort and small lumps of fame or acceptance to the unimaginable power of being loved and accepted by God to being a friend of Jesus. Can you imagine? Jesus, the King, is your friend. He could be. He will be if you'll trust Him. Jim Elliot got it right. See, in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, he embraced the exalted, unstoppable worship of God. And this is what he wrote when he was 20. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And he died at 28. And just like the two Nicks in my life, that from my human perspective died far too young, 
But I'll tell you what they both have in common. They worship Jesus. And they're now with him. And they changed lives because they worship Jesus. Are you and I going to do that? So today, Calvary Baptist, friends, visitors, here and online, will you confess your misapplied worship? Stop going to Jesus with your agenda. Will you be teachable with your misunderstood worship? Will you repent of your misplaced worship? And will you embrace and trust and participate in that Revelation 5 exalted worship of God? And as Forrest Gump says, that's all I have to say about this. Let's pray. Father God, I want to worship you. Lord, I want my wife and my children and my grandchildren to worship you. I want my friends and my church family to worship you. I want St. John's to worship you. I want Newfoundland and Labrador to worship you. I want Canada to worship you. I want North America to worship you, Lord. Indeed, I want the world to worship you. And yet I know that your word tells me all will worship you one day. But my God, I pray that we here today will be determined to trust you and worship you as Father God, not as judge. Lord, help young people here to not be afraid to truly give themselves to you and realize the impact they can have on the world around them. I pray that parents would be willing to give their children to Jesus and stop going to Jesus with their agenda. I pray that singles and young marrieds here would realize to worship God is to give up your hopes and dreams of yourself. Those are small and cling to the purposes of God. I hope that Calvary Baptist will see that our value is not in facilities or reputation, but how much we reflect what it means to be touched and transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are bigger than politics, stronger than the coronavirus. You are Lord over marriages and families and relationships. The question is, Lord, will we look to you as our King? In Jesus' name, amen.